are dismissed to go with Miss Liz there in the back. Those of you who are staying with us, I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of 2 Samuel. Now, last week we looked at chapter 2. This week we're actually going to be covering a lot of material. We're going to be covering chapters 3 and 4. So because we are covering so much, so much material, there's going to be a lot that I'm not going to be able to cover. There's things now, because this, there's just a lot of information being brought to us. However, the good news is uh, most of the stuff that I'm leaving out will come up later on. So there's things that are being kind of introduced to us in these that we're not going to deal with now, but we will have an opportunity to revisit them here. Now, those of you who are with us last week, you know that one of the things that really 2 Samuel has been confronting us with is this concept and this idea that there are really kind of two kingdoms. And so we see really two kingdoms at play, a kingdom of God and a kingdom of man. And so we talked last week in the kingdom of God, there is a place of trust. There's a three characteristics that we talked about is a, uh, uh, within the kingdom of God. It is, there's prayerful intimacy, there's submission to God, and ultimately there's love working itself out in good works. But we saw in the kingdom of man, it is working itself out through the means of man, through power, through aggression, through things like saying, hey, we're not waiting on God, but we're going to take matters into our own hands. Now, many of us, we can get that concept on its face value. But we can look, and as we go throughout our daily lives, one of the things that confronts us is how strong and pervasive the ways of the kingdom of man confront us in many ways. And we can say from a large-scale theory that we are on the side of the kingdom of God, but in a world that is filled with brokenness, we see a maxim that I have found so true in my own ministry as I work with others, this truth, hurt people hurt people. And so what we see within this, in this kingdom of man, this perpetual sense of conflict, of hurt, hurting one another, and how do we respond? We begin responding by the learned cycles of hurt that just continue to perpetuate. And they, they seem to be almost like the air we breathe in a broken world. But the kingdom of God crashes wonderfully and turns that kingdom upside down. And so what we're going to be looking at today is in some ways a continuation of last week as we drill a little bit deeper, just a little bit deeper into the ideas of how some of those hurt, some of those cycles of the kingdom of man continue to perpetuate themselves oftentimes in our lives as we're going to see it quite clearly exampled in the lives of Abner and the lives of David and Joab. But also how Christ gives us freedom, a release from those cycles to lead us into a kingdom of God that is filled with true peace, true freedom. And so as we begin within there, what we're going to see first and foremost is a messy kingdom. The kingdom is at civil war. You see Abner is placed, Saul's son, Eshbosheth is the king in the north. And it begins, as we were to look at last week, it almost seemed like it's the inevitable kingdom that's going to win. It seems to just kind of grow and perpetuate versus King David is the king and he's been promised to be king by God. 
And he's been anointed as king in Hebron in the south, but it's just by one tribe, by Judah. And so you'd almost think that surely the power dynamics would favor Abner and Esbosheth. And again, we saw the beginnings of the stage of the messiness of war and that very horrible conflict in which we saw Abner in the battle ended up killing Joab's younger brother, leading to incredible devastation. This continues on in the conflict and what we're going to see in second in these two chapters. What it shows is that God is at work providentially despite the sinful scheming of man to bring about his kingdom. You see, one of the things in these two chapters, you see, God kind of referred to, um, kind of almost given lip service to by a couple of the people like Abner. But the narrator doesn't show any kind of like direct miracle, any kind of direct supernatural event in which God intercedes. You see, a whole lot of messy fighting, but yet what is quite clear as we step back to look is in the midst of all the scheming of man, God is sovereignly and provincially bringing about his kingdom within there. And so as we look at verse 1, it kind of introduces all of this. It says, and there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. Now, we begin to see a little bit more of the dynamics of what's going on in the house of Saul as we skip ahead to verse 6. And so it says, and there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David. Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. Now, we saw that Abner was one of the key guys in, in chapter 2 that was, he was kind of the king, you know, par excellence of the kingdom of men. He didn't look and say, what is God doing? He said, he made Eshbosheth king. He took him and he placed him upon the throne. And what we see is even though he's not on the throne, he's the power behind the throne that's taking place there. And he's becoming stronger and stronger. Saul had a concubine. Now Saul's now dead. His son's living. Saul had a concubine and, uh, who was Rizpah and the daughter of um, Aiah. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, why have you gone into my father's concubine? Now, it doesn't specifically say that Abner did this. We don't know for sure whether he did it or not because it could have been kind of a power play by Ishbosheth. It could have been him saying, hey, Abner is getting bigger and bigger. I'm going to level an accusation against him. We don't know, although it's certainly very likely he could have. Now, what's the big deal? Well, this was part of the royal harem. And so and in this day and time, for somebody to kind of go into the royal harem, it was basically a sign of usurping the power of the throne. So in other words, if Abner had in fact done that, that was basically would have been tantamount to him saying, I am the power that is here. It would be very much a usurping move. This wouldn't be about passion or lust even. It would be a political maneuver that is taking place. And so Abner gets confronted by Esbosheth. But look at Abner's response. Then Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head of Judah? To this day I have kept showing steadfast love to the house of Saul and your father to his brothers and to his friends, and have not given you to the hand of David. And yet you charge me today with a fault concerning a woman. 
God do so to Abner and more if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and to set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. Now, wait a minute here. What is that showing? What's that showing is Abner knew very good and well who was supposed to be king. But we also see a tremendous pride and arrogance in Abner here. He's saying, look, God wants this. And ultimately, I'm the one who's been standing in front of God to make this happen. And if I want to make this happen, guess what? I can do it. There's tremendous arrogance and pride in play here. Basically, he's saying, I'm in charge more than God is. And Esbosheth could not answer Abner. Another word because he feared him. And Abner sent messengers to David on his behalf, saying, To whom does the land belong? Now that's a very kind of broad statement. Who does the land belong to? He doesn't answer. Is he saying, Does it really belong to me? Is he saying, Well, David, this really belongs to you? Now, who does the land actually belong to? God. This is God's kingdom within there. But there's a very vague answer here that is taking place. Now, here's Dave, uh, Abner again. Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring over all Israel to you. In other words, he's saying, make me your friend, and I'll make this happen. You need me, David. And he said, and this is David's response. And he said, good, I will make a covenant with you. But one thing I require of you is that you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michal, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. That was his first wife. Now, there's a tragic story within that, and we'll have to wait to deal with that at a later time. Moving ahead to verse 17. And Abner conferred with the elders of Israel, saying, For some time past you have been seeking David over as king over you. Now then, bring it about, for the Lord has promised David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people from Israel, my people Israel, from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their in enemies. Now, once again, Abner kind of gives up the uh, gives up the, the the story right there. What is he saying? He says, number one, he knows who's actually supposed to be in charge, and number. Two, we see that the people actually kind of wanted David as king. So in other words, there's a sense of maybe it was fear of Abner, uh, the power dynamics, the established army that was in place. We don't know all the details. And Abner went to tell David at Hebron and all of Israel and the whole house of Benjamin thought, uh, thought good to do. And when Abner came with 20 men to David at Hebron, David made and the men who were with him, and Abner said to David, I will arise and go and will gather all Israel to my Lord, the king, that they may make a covenant with you and that they may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away and he went away in peace. Now, the story changes from there because what you see is Joab, who is a couple of things. Number one, Joab was David's chief general. He was the man in charge of the military operations in many ways, shape, and form. 
but he's also the man whose brother Abner killed. Now, it's, it's very important to remember that when Abner killed his brother, he tried to get him to stop fighting him. He said, go fight somebody else. The other thing is important to remember is that this was in a seat of battle. So in other words, there was nothing cold-blooded. There was nothing malicious. Abner was really pretty innocent in this death. But Joab hears this and he is furious. Now, why is he furious? Well, probably for a couple of different reasons. He's trying to say you can't trust Abner. Now, there's probably a great deal of bitterness and anger because Abner killed his brother, and so there's this hot-headed blood. But there's also a sense in which Abner becomes an extremely powerful rival for second-in-command. And Joab, later in this narrative, will kill another rival who's going to become, who has a chance to kind of usurp Joab's power. So Joab is very much, even though, as we talked about last week, though he is fighting for the name of God's kingdom, he is not fighting through kingdom characteristics, means, or ways. And so what we see, as we skip down to verse 26, when Joab came out from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner. And they brought him back into the cistern of Syrah. But David did not know about it. And when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside and in the midst of the gate, speaking with him privately. And there he struck him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Ashael, his brother. Afterward, when David heard of it, he said, I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord for the blood of Abner and for the son of Ner. Now, the narrator is making great pains to show a couple of things. Number one, what had happened to Abner was not a battle-filled kill. It was nothing short of absolute murder. But the bigger thing that is trying to show is that David was completely innocent. Just as he was completely innocent in Saul's death. So in other words, there is no part of when David, as David assumes the throne over all of Israel, no one can say David did it through underhanded schemes. He became king because of the sovereignty of God who was bringing about his kingdom. And that is it. May it fall upon the head of Joab and upon all his father's house. And may the house of Joab never be without one who is discharged or who is leprous or holds a spindle or who falls by the sword or who lacks bread. So Joab and Abashi, his brother, killed Abner because he had put their brother Ashael to death in the battle of Gideon. And so notice what David does. He just kind of curses him. He doesn't discipline him. He doesn't hold him to justice. Because he's going to kind of see, he's like, hey, I, I almost kind of need him. So in other words, if there's a spot in David, he, 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 he doesn't deal with it, but he just allows this anger to fester to the point that kind of when he's on his deathbed, he tells Solomon, hey, go kill Joab for what he did here. This would be years, decades later. There's no justice that is done, just kind of a resolve to let's not deal with this right now. And so all the people of Israel understood that day that it was not been the king's will to put to death Abner, the son of Ner. And the king said to his servants, do you not know that a prince has a great man has fallen today for this day in Israel? And I was gentle today, though anointed king. These men, these sons of Zariah, 
are more severe than I, the Lord repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. Now the scene changes because what we're going to find now is now that Abner's dead, the northern kingdom feels the loss of that, that power vacuum and they're kind of afraid. They know that Abner was kind of the power behind things. And so the first thing we see as we change into chapter 4, verse 1, is when Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed, and all Israel was dismayed. And so what happens when the ship begins to sink? The rats flee. And what this is going to bring out is a bunch of people working within the kingdom of man beginning to operate according to the kingdom of man principles, which says, hey, Never waste a crisis. And so you're going to see two of Ishbosheth's generals or captains, two of their leaders who has intimate access, use that access to ultimately assassinate the king. And they assassinate him because they're trying to make a power play. They're thinking, hey, the winds have changed. David's going to win. Let's make the most of it instead of being captains who go down with the ship Let's do something that will earn our favor with David. So they kill Ishbosheth, they behead him, and they decide to take his head to David. And so in, in verse 7, it says, When they came to the house, as he lay on his bed, his bedroom, they struck him and they put him to death and beheaded him. And they took his head and they went by the way of uh, Arabah all night and brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my Lord for the, uh, for the king this day on Saul and on his offspring. Now they're working from the view of the world. Hey, these guys are in conflict. We'll just make a move. David will be happy with this. We've made his life a little bit easier. They're working from a mindset of the material world, the secular world in which we live in, in which says there is no God. So thus, life is what we make it. Verse 9, But David answered Rechab and Benah, that's the two captains who killed uh, Esbosheth, his brother, the sons of Ramon, the Barothite, as the Lord lives. Notice his response. David isn't living in that secular world absent of God. As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity, when one told me, behold, Saul is dead and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I not now require his blood at your hands and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded the young men and they killed them and they cut off their hands and the feet and hanged them beside the pool of Hebron. And they took the head of Ishbosheth and they buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. And you see, what we see in the midst of all of this mess, we see quite clearly, once again, how the ways of the world deals with a broken world. Now, keep in mind, the, the Bible never kind of gives us this illustration that we're going to find a world that isn't broken, that isn't tainted with sin. Not until Christ returns and all sin is dealt away with. So it doesn't permit this, this kind of fairy tale uh, nostalgia 
by which we can find a place in which there are no hardships within there. The broken world of this reality will continue to be a reality until God returns. But we're going to see the way a, a, a material world, a secular world, a humanist world deals with the brokenness versus the way God, those who see God and understand who God is, who understand the gospel see. And one of the first things that we see the way a world deals with the, with the brokenness is we seek to elevate ourselves by bringing others down. Notice Abner's reaction to his pride. His pride has been hurt. Somebody stood up against him. And so what is going to happen is he's got to take this guy down a peg. Even Joab. Hey, we've got a rival in here. We got somebody I don't like. I'm bitter. I had this. He has wronged me. So how do I deal with this in this broken world? I got to take them down. Now, most of you, as you're dealing in the brokenness of your world, are probably not going to start a coup in your government. At least, I hope not. Most of you are probably not going to commit murder. Please don't do that, okay? That's probably not what we're doing. However, this is a mentality that is rampant within our culture, within our workplaces, and even in most churches, now, how do we try to elevate ourselves by bringing people down? Well, one of the key ways we try to do that is through gossip. We try to bring other people down. We try to destroy their, we kill them with our words, and with, we try to destroy their, their, um, their reputation. We make ourselves feel good. We make ourselves feel better. We elevate our own righteousness, so to speak, by airing out the dark laundry of others. It can be in the workplace where we look and we say, oh, do you know what really happened in that meeting? That guy, you think that guy was prepared, but listen, buddy, I saved his hiney, right? We, we, we do that uh, in our families you know, as we gossip about our, our family members or about our neighbors. And if we're being honest, we see that quite clearly oftentimes in church as well where we elevate ourselves by trying to bring others down through gossip. We kill them in our hearts with our words. Another thing we do that is very prevalent in our society is we, we elevate ourselves by trying to bring others down through our passive-aggressive remarks. Let's be honest, this, this saturates the way we deal with one another in a broken world. What are some of the ways that we do that? Well, one of the key ways we do that is sarcasm. We flood our homes and our businesses and our offices with the sarcasm. Now, let me be honest. I'm telling on myself on this one. In fact, we often joke in our Sullivan household that our love language is sarcasm, right? We are a very sarcastic family. And God's been working on my heart on that because, you know, it's part of his, my, my, my sense of humor, but... We have to watch that, that we, we become mockers within that. And so we come in and we, but we often, there's a lot of truth behind some of the, 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 the sarcasm and the parts of aggressiveness that we do. It's like, oh, wow, you actually did this right for a change. Or, oh, wow, you're on time for a change. And so we make all these cutting remarks. And so often within the family, Within marriage relationships, they become ways in which we try, we seek to elevate ourselves. We do these kind of relationship jujitsu 
and judo with one another in the way that we, we try to elevate ourselves, but we bring our spouses or our kids or our in-laws down through our remarks within there. But in addition to trying to elevate ourselves by bringing others down, we also often try to elevate ourselves by creating a false reality of our importance. And so we see this quite clearly with Abner, right? He views himself as he's the one that is keeping the kingdom together. He's the one, and if he wants to give it over to David, it's not about what God does, it's about what he does. And what's interesting about this is God removes him from the table. God shows quite clearly he does not need Abner to transfer the kingdom over to David. What are some of the ways that we do this? Well, one of the ways is when we believe our ego, our accomplishments must be recognized and celebrated. Paul Miller in his book, The J-Curve, he gives an example of this. One time when he was in a meeting, and boy, does this, this one cuts me to the core, if I'm being honest. And so he's in a meeting, and he has this idea, this thing that, the, that they should be doing as, a, as, a, as an organization. And the people around it, they begin getting excited about this. And you know what happens? Nobody seems to recognize or mention that it was actually Paul's idea. And so what does he want to do? Let's find a way to bring this into the conversation. Oh, yeah, aren't you glad I made this idea? You know, we, we try to begin to find ways to, to make sure that everybody recognizes what we've done. And as he began to feel that, and he felt the Spirit convicting him to hold his mouth shut, and the meaning ended with nobody recognizing what he's done, he said there was a death within him. Why? Because he was looking to have his ego, his entire self, justified by the recognition of what he's done instead of finding it completely satisfied in Christ. Now, this isn't to say to give us, you know, justification for being relationally stupid and not recognizing the contributions of others or recognizing some people are completely blind to what other people are doing. But a lot of times we can begin to suffer and struggle in our marriages and our relationships. Why? We begin to get defensive and angry because we feel that our, 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 our needs for our identity are not being placed. And so we want to create this inflated sense of self. And so we're not able to take criticism and, and that often can, can make itself, show itself in the person who maybe in the church, they hate sin. And so they're very quick to, to point out the sins of others. But you never see them acknowledging their own need for grace. They have to be the hero of the story. But this also can work itself out in this false sense in which we become captive to people-pleasing as well. As we begin to see it is up to us to be able to keep everything in peace. Our people pleasing can be actually a big symptom of a lot of times of the way where we've created this false narrative. And another way that works itself out is we begin to ignore our own limitations. 
The limitations of our body, the limitations of the need for rest, our limitations for the need for Sabbath, because we believe everything depends on us. And so we take our bodies to the limit. Now we can do so and, and we can we can guard you and we can present it as in great piety. It's look at how much I'm sacrificing for the Lord. Look how much. You know, and we often do that in a conversation. It's like, well, you know, I'm a Martha, so you can be a Mary, right? <laughs> but the truth behind that is we've inflated our own self and we're not able to rest and trust to abide in God to know that God doesn't need me. Now, this isn't a call to be lazy. It is a call to trust within there. Third way we, the world deals and we see here um, is it, we seek to elevate ourselves through manipulation. These second assassins, they thought they'd be rewarded. Hey, let's turn on the king. Let's, let's, this guy is no longer of use to us. It was great. We enjoyed being captains. We enjoyed being his men when it worked out for us. But you know what? This isn't looking so great for our future. Let's make a play and let's begin moving on here. Let's throw ourselves before this David here. And this is it's, it's opportunism, right? And we see this all the time in our politics, but we can see it in ourselves as well where we choose what we value, what we spend our time on solely based on how it benefits us. We seek relationships really just for what they can do for us. We, we seek, if we're going to do any kind of a charity or any good thing, why waste that effort if we're not going to post it on Facebook or Instagram? Now, there's nothing wrong with networking. It's a good, it's a needed thing, but... It crosses a line when we only see the value of other people for what they can do for us. Are we willing to value people that do nothing for us? That's a sure sign that we've crossed into manipulation. The final way the world deals with the brokenness is by wrapping itself in bitterness. Bitterness becomes this cocoon the cynicism by which we seek to self-protect ourselves. Joab, wrapped in this layer, thick layer of cynicism. We can't trust Abner. He's a murderer. He's, he's a rival. So what does he do? He seeks to kill. We wrap ourselves in cynicism and we become constantly cynical and critical, upset that nobody listens to you, we want to make sure that everyone knows that you are right, they are wrong. And so we constantly criticize. Sometimes this happens verbally. Sometimes it just happens through our passive-aggressive sulking or withdrawing. Now, it's worth noting, once again, that these are all natural behaviors in a world that refuses to acknowledge the rule of God. And most of you, as I kind of maybe listed some of those, you immediately, someone came to your mind. 
your mother-in-law, your husband, your sister, your boss, your co-worker within there. It's very easy to spot in others. But a lot of times we don't want to acknowledge it in ourselves. It's also worth noting that, it, once again, these are all often learned responses. Oftentimes they're generational. They're, it is that hurt people hurting people. There are ways that we've learned to respond to the traumas and the brokenness of the world, and we've learned to protect ourselves. And without God, they make sense. To a material or secular world, they become coping mechanisms. But the good news, friends, in all of this is that the Lord does exist. He is real. He is in charge providentially. The Lord does, in fact, live. So in face of all of this, David, David's response is so pertinent for us as we look in 2 Samuel 4.9 to the ways of the world. David answered, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. He doesn't live in the cold, unenchanted world of materialism. He lives in the beautiful world in which the Lord God reigns. He is alive and he is acknowledged. Notice what he says here. It is he who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. He doesn't say the Lord has kept me out of adversity. He doesn't say, well, Lord's got a pretty good track record. Sometimes he comes through. But he says, no, the Lord is the one who has ultimately been the one behind saving me out of every adversity. He doesn't say it's because, hey, I've made really good relationships with, with this wife. It's not because I made a good choice in creating Joab as my general. It's not because, hey, I, I became pretty good with the sword. No. The Lord is the one who's redeemed my life from every adversity. There's a temptation there. Almost kind of a temptation I see. It, it really kind of reminds me of, of Satan's temptation of Eve. Right? I know the Lord says this, but if you just take the apple and eat it, you won't really need God. There's a temptation there to view the world from that cynical view in which chaos is ruling rather than God. But the Lord lives and he's able to claim through eyes of faith that the cynical world is actually a lie. The Lord lives. His response is not to take the apple, but to worship to worship. And so what do we see within these three responses? First, if we were to kind of boil it down, we see three responses in this verse that is so important. Number one, he's saying that God is the only one who is truly, truly in control. God is the only one who truly saves, and God and God alone is the one who is faithful. The only thing David needed was God. And because of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, not because of who David was the Lord was his refuge. The world had nothing to offer him. He didn't need Abner. He didn't need Isbosheth to be killed. God was his redeemer in every adversity, not some adversities. This free, do you see the freedom within David? Do you see it, the freedom to be a peacemaker? 
the freedom to be one who reconciles with his enemy, the freedom to bring about peace, to live into God's rule, to not be imprisoned by opportunism. Why? Because he was saved and the love of God for him. He's able to escape this cycle of brokenness, this perpetual cycle of brokenness of hurt people, hurting people. And so it's true with us, with Jesus. As we receive the love of the Lord Jesus Christ, we find our identity is found in him in a grace that we will never, ever be able to earn, but moves towards us with the ferocious might of his love. It frees us. I'd rather be imprisoned by the brokenness of this world to be able to dance in his freedom. So rather than trying to elevate ourselves by bringing other people down, we know that we, by faith, we've been joined and brought into God's kingdoms as heirs of the king, sons and daughters of God. Rather than needing to bring other people down, this ocean of love which meets us, which will never change it, frees us to move into places of service, of sacrificial love that actually is costly to us so that others might be lifted up. This is the mind of Christ that we see in Philippians 2, is it not? David didn't need to create a reality of his own false importance because he was able to be safe and secure the reality that God was in charge. That freed him to be able to rest, to be able to trust, to be patient. He was freed by God's love that he didn't have to be justified by other people's approval and therefore in the face of criticism, in the face of enemies, he was secure and he was safe. The safety of God's unchanging love ultimately can free us from our own limitations and be able to rest in God. It frees us from the tyranny of people-pleasing. It frees us from the need to manipulate, to use people simply for our own good. It frees us to actually love them because we have all we need in Christ. You can't change the brokenness of this world. God and God alone will do that. So we don't have to wrap ourselves in bubble wrap of cynicism and bitterness. We can trust that through Christ, all things will be made well. It frees us from the cynicism and the bitterness to be freed from our anger, to give us something remarkable, hope. But this is only found in Christ. Now, if you're like me, as you look at that list, once again, if I'm being honest, I see myself play out every one of those destructive habits. My response then is to continually bring the gospel into every thought. As I analyze and I look and I become honest with myself, I say, you know what? I was living according to the kingdom, but by God's grace, I can, number one, experience his forgiveness. 
but also can experience the power of the freedom of the gospel. And so I continue to live in to say, in this situation, if Christ has truly freed me in his love because of his grace, how would I respond to this enemy or this person who's made himself my enemy? To this person who has, would normally lead me to cynicism. This person who normally hurts me with their remarks. It's a beautiful, beautiful dance of freedom. And it's not one you, you can earn yourself into, but every one of you can find it by throwing yourself upon the mercy of Jesus Christ. And so I'd invite you to do that today. Will that mean all of a sudden all of these patterns will be gone? No. It will be a constant work of sanctification in your life. But we will be blown away by the power of God in our midst by what he will do, which is beyond our imagination. As God reveals not us, not our grandeur, not your grandeur, but his glory and goodness. Why don't you do that today? Father, we thank you for your love and for your kindness. We pray, Lord, that you would be with us, enabling us in all things to trust you. In the places where it's hard, we've experienced patterns of brokenness and it becomes so easy and natural for us Give us the faith to believe that you're in control, that you love us, that we can trust you. Enable us by faith to completely trust in the goodness and the power of your grace and love. And for any today who are not trusting you, give them the faith to believe now, to trust in the complete forgiveness of their sins through the atoning work of Jesus by faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand and sing with us.